Lord, thanks that you richly bless us in so many ways. And I pray that our eyes would be open um, enough to see the great ways you do bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. We like to eat at our house. And, uh, you know, if you're a young guy, maybe unmarried, my brother, my older, wiser brother, gave me this sage advice before I got married. He said, uh, get one that can cook. (laughs) I lived with my brother for, and his family, for a couple of years, and his wife was really a great cook, and so I appreciated that. I took that to heart. So that was a requirement. That was the first thing if I dated some gal to ask, you know, how's your cooking, right? (laughs) Anyway, we do like to eat at our house, and, and most of the time we eat not long after I get home from work. So generally what that means is when I walk in the front door, or if I come up from the garage, you know, up the basement stairs, it means I get to smell dinner cooking when I come home. It's a nice thing. It's a good thing to to come home to, you know, the smell of supper cooking. And one day last week, uh, it's always good. It was particularly good. It's all these vegetables. I'm not a huge vegetable guy, but it's all these vegetables uh, sautéed in olive oil with um, salts and spices. Anyway, it smells great. And these things get wolfed down by my crew with grilled chicken breast. So, you know, I come home and there's all the savory stuff in the air. Supper's cooking. I'm smelling. It smells pretty good. I'm filled with anticipation. I'm happy to be home just because of the smell that's in the air. The aroma makes me glad. It gives me anticipation. Let's me know something good's coming. You guys know we don't pay as much attention to our sense of smell as we do sight or sound, typically. I like music, so for instance, at our house, you guys know, I don't know how many things we have at our house that'll play music, but it's a bunch. And we're listening to music most of the time. You know, we're entertaining our sense of hearing, so to speak, through the music we listen to. Or sight, we're all looking. Of course, we're using our eyes all day, every day, except when we're asleep, I suppose. But anyway, we use those senses routinely. That's standard. But the sense of smell may be appreciated a little bit less, but... Think, uh, <clears throat> think if you go by a garbage can with something rotting in it. You know, you, you walk by and you're assaulted. You're, your nose is offended, so to speak, by the stench coming out of that trash can. Or, you know, most of us probably this morning, hopefully, since we're sitting close to each other, we wiped something under our arms before we left for church this morning so that we won't offend other people with the smell that we might not like. Um, On the other hand, you know, we might have uh, put on some perfume or some cologne uh, if we wanted not just to not smell bad, but if we wanted to positively smell good. My girls would come up because I'm tall. You know, if they hug me, they're at my armpit. And they always say, gosh, dad, you smell so good. What is that? And I always say the same thing. It's my deodorant. You like my deodorant? I'm so glad. It's Old Spice. Old Spice deodorant. Thinking of smells, I went online uh, this week to look at perfumes online. And my deal was, what's the most expensive perfume? That's what I wanted to find out. So I can tell you, based on Forbes magazine, the authority here on wealth, the most expensive perfume in the world right now is called Imperial Majesty. It's made by Clive Christian. 
Now, an ounce of this perfume costs $215,000. And you know, Becky, I know this is a ripoff. Do you know, and this is why I know it's a ripoff. <clears throat> By the way, he's made five of these, and he sold three. He sold three already. So this is the deal. This is why it's a ripoff, though. You know, $215,000. The ripoff, though, is because this is really Clive Christian's standard number one perfume. It's just his number one perfume, which sells for $2,150 an ounce, not $21.5, but $2,150 an ounce. And then it's put in this, I don't even know if I'm saying this right, Baccarat crystal with an 18-carat gold collar and a 5-carat diamond lid. I mean, give me a break. It's just his number one perfume. What's with that? $215,000. Most of the top perfumes in Forbes magazine sell for about $2,000 an ounce. I was kind of surprised Chanel number, what, Chanel something is is up there. It's almost at that price level too. Uh, Here's one for you too. There's a company in Paris that will sit down with you and they'll make your unique perfume, your perfume, nobody else in the world will have it. They take you through all these options, you know, these aromas and spices and whatever, and you put together the perfume you want, and it's proprietary, it's yours, they'll keep the formula for you if you want to buy more in the future. That costs a measly $36,000 if you want to go get your own perfume. So, $215,000, $2,150, $36,000, you know, it sounds a little pricey, but maybe smelling good, you know, Sean, it might be worth it, I don't know. The text we're in this morning is John 12, 1 through 8. And this is the story about a woman and her perfume and the lasting impression she made with it. John 12, 1 through 8. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, says, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is John's commentary, the author's. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, you remember from John 11, Jesus, it's kind of the same setting. He's been down with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus before, and and he's back there now just before the Passover, back with the same crew. And it's interesting, too, uh, sometimes the thing Scripture includes about a person is uh, it's inferring something just by what it includes or doesn't include. So I find it interesting in chapter 12 opens up that each person is occupying the same position they did in chapter 11. That is, they're characterized by the same thing. Jesus is in the place of honor, Martha is serving, Mary's at Jesus' feet, and Lazarus is just lying around. It's my joke. That's it. He's dead lying around chapter 11. No hope. Dan, what do I do? That's the best I've got. Lazarus is just lying around. Anyway, 
We're not sure, by the way. Uh, there's a couple other stories. You guys know if you read the Synoptic Gospels, John doesn't have a lot in common with the other three, but he has a few things in common. This story about Mary anointing Jesus sounds awfully similar to Matthew 26, 6 through 13, and Mark 14, 3 through 9. And just so you're aware of it, let me just give you the similarities and dissimilarities. And before I forget, there's also one in Luke in which a woman uh, weeps on Jesus' feet. It sounds similar, wipes his feet with her hair, but an entirely different setting, different woman, different place, different time. The Matthew and Mark, though, this is what they have in common with John 12. It's the same time frame. It's just before Passover. It's in the same place in Bethany. And the same comments are made as here in John 12. The dissimilarities are this. Matthew and Mark, which read almost identically, they include the name of the homeowner, which is Simon the leper. They don't include Mary's name. In their comments... Jesus' head is anointed, not his feet. It notes also that the perfume's in an alabaster vial. And then also, they have an additional few verses, which we'll actually look at here in just a little bit, in which Jesus makes some more commentary about what was done. It sure looks like they're the same story, that they're the same incident, and that the authors have included some elements because of what they're emphasizing and not others, but that it's the same story. Look at verse 3 here in John 12. Mary took a pound of very costly perfume, pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This nard, pure nard, there's a little bit of uncertainty as what exactly this, this means. Actually, the term pure in Greek is the term we would use for faithful. The thought is that it's probably the sense that this is a, an undiluted perfume it would be like alcohol or wine in those days you could dilute something and oftentimes most often perfumes would be diluted this apparently was not and nard uh, probably from india grows only in certain places the plant this is produced from so very expensive john says very costly perfume now when he says later 300 denarii that is that's what this perfume would cost or that's what it could be sold for 300 denarii a denarii was about a day's wage for a common worker. So you're talking about around a year's worth of income for a common laborer. So if we put this in today's dollars, if we're thinking a common laborer might make as little as seven and a half an hour, so that'd still be around $15,000. You know, if you're talking about plumbers and electricians, it could be as high as $40,000. However you, you price this out, this perfume was worth probably in today's market anything from between about fifteen and $40,000. So no matter how wealthy Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were, this was a big chunk of change. This was a significant investment. So Mary takes this perfume, this very expensive per- perfume, and she pours it out on Jesus and the aroma fills the house, this incredibly expensive, costly act. It is an act of worship, of course. She's at his feet. She's taking what's most valuable. She's pouring it out on him. And I love the thought that the aroma of her act fills the house. The aroma fills the place around her. Now, two things related to this. The first is, if you or I were doing this, and maybe this is the way we live life too, 
if I had this really expensive stuff and I wanted to honor someone with it, I might, you know, drip, 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 drip. You know? Uh, I want to honor Jesus, so I'd drip, drip on his head. Let's assume it's the same story with Matthew Mark. Drip, drip on his head just a little bit. Drip, drip on his feet just a little bit. That would be a good thing. That'd still be good. It's expensive, and I've given some of it to him. But she takes this thing. You know, if I brought $40,000 in front of you and I burned it up in your presence, you'd be aghast, so to speak. But she takes, let's just say, $40,000, and just in a single act, she just pours it out. Pours it all out. It's this very, very extravagant, lavish act. And, And in fact, it looks wasteful. Because it's so excessive, it's dripping off his feet. You know, if she just wanted to wet the feet and she, and she wanted to be careful, though, you know, not to waste anything, she could have poured less. But it's so extravagant, it's dripping off his feet. It's running down, dripping off. It's, I assume, going to drip off on the floor. So it's extravagant. It appears wasteful. It's so extravagant. And then beyond that, she wipes the excess with her hair. Now, this sounds humbling to me from the start, but think of the Muslim countries today where the women are hidden in the burqas. Now, Middle Eastern culture here wasn't quite this um, strict, but close, much closer to that than to our culture. Women didn't let their hair down in public. didn't happen. A woman's hair was considered her glory and her honor. And in fact, you know, if you read Old Testament texts, you wanted to shame the enemy when you captured their women you shaved their heads if you saw a woman with a shaved head you knew she was a slave a captive out of war first corinthians 11 talks about this issue of authority and hair and head coverings and it says the woman's hair was given to her as her honor or her glory so mary does this excessive extravagant act pours it out so that it's 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 uh, falling off of his feet she lets down her hair her glory, she humbles herself at her feet and she uses her hair like a towel to wipe up the excess, to clean it up, so to speak. So on one hand, it's this incredibly extravagant act and then on the other, it's this incredibly humble act. And the thing that strikes me here is Mary is a person of means. If she lived in Topeka, she'd live out at the lake or uh, one of the big expensive homes probably because it's clear that they're, they're a family of means. And yet she takes the place of the lowest servant in the house. You guys know in Middle Eastern culture, you wear sandals, you go to someone's house. When you go into their house, they would have the slave and it'd be the lowest slave, wash your feet. That's the lowest slave's job. Mary, this person of means, social standing, importance in Bethany probably, maybe even in Jerusalem, she doesn't, she doesn't take any of that into account. She acts like the lowest person in the house. She kneels at Jesus' feet. She lets down her hair and uses it like a cloth, just like the lowest household slave would. She pours out the perfume in lavish extravagance. She humbly wipes the excess with her hair. And the aroma of her worship fills the house. Everyone around her sees it and smells it. Now, compare this. Compare Mary with the other person in these short few verses. 
fact, do you remember we looked at the response in chapter 11 between some who believed in Jesus with the raising of Lazarus and some who didn't? And you got this great contrast here in John 12 as well. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, you know, my, my wife grew up thinking this was Judas the scariest because when she would hear this, she thought that's what they were saying. Judas the scariest, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, says, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This rebuke by Judas towards Mary was off the mark for two reasons at least. Uh, First think of this. Mary knew who Jesus was. You remember in chapter 11, Mary and Martha see Jesus raise their brother from the dead. He's four days in the grave. There's no question he's dead. He's really dead. And Jesus comes down with authority over death and says... Lazarus come forth. They see him. And you remember Martha says, we know who you are, just like Peter had in John 6 and also in Matthew 16 or 18. I can't remember right now. Same confession. We know who you are. You're the Messiah, the Christ of God. So they know who Jesus is. Mary knows who Jesus is. So Judas is wrong in his rebuke to start with on this level. Because Mary knew who Jesus was, she understood that he was worthy of anything she poured out. In other words, if the object of her worship was worthy of everything, then nothing could be, in that sense, extravagant. Since she knew who Jesus was and she knew he was worthy of anything and everything she was or had, for her to pour out this perfume wasn't extravagant. It was appropriate. It was just appropriate. Or if you think of Christians through the centuries who've left fame and fortune and and thinking of missionaries in the 1800s, C.T. Studd and others, who on one level look like fools because they walk away from wealth, from success as the world counts success, but they didn't see it that way. They understood Christ was worthy of whatever they gave up. So Judas has this wrong in the first place because He doesn't recognize Jesus' worth, but Mary did. So because of that, for her to give Jesus anything, this perfume or her house or any other element of her life, this wasn't extravagant, this was appropriate. If the object of your worship is worthy, then nothing you give them or lay down before that object is extravagant. It's simply appropriate. The other reason he was off, though, is because the motive behind his rebuke was off. Judas looks at what Mary does. And by the way, Matthew and Mark don't say this is Judas. They just say the disciples. I think if you look it up, I believe the term is plural. The disciples said. If you read those accounts, the question's open as to who said it or how many said it. And In John, it's attributed to Judas, but maybe the other guys were shaking their heads like, yeah, yeah. Judas says it, though, because he doesn't value Jesus. He he doesn't believe in who he is. And this is interesting, too, isn't it? We had a conversation this week at home about people who will die and stand before Christ and to whom, in the words of Luke, he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And lots of these people are going to be religious people. They're going to be people who kept rules. And they went to church. They gave. They did numerous things. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. And all you have to do is look at Judas. Judas walks with Jesus three years plus. 
He sees all the miracles. He's in the, he's in the, uh, uh, where, where do we go on the Sabbath? My mind's drawn a blank anyway. The temple, the uh, synagogue. You know what I mean? He's in church. And he has absolutely no estimate of Jesus' value. So when he sees someone doing what looks extravagant, pouring out all this wealth, wasting the perfume on Jesus, he's thinking this is lousy, this is terrible. It's because he doesn't value Jesus. He has never believed. He doesn't know Jesus' worth. And isn't that interesting? Because he doesn't know Jesus' worth, he sells him cheaply within the week. Do you know, Mary took, in a sense, all she had and pours it out on him without apparently a second thought. Knowing Jesus' worth, Judas sells him for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I mean, just frankly, think of it this way. If Judas had even a a barter sense of value, he could have got a lot more than 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. You remember how badly the leaders want to get rid of him. I mean, frankly, just from a a very carnal sense, he was ripped off. He didn't even value Jesus enough to sell him for what he could have gotten out of him. He esteemed him so little that he had no sense of his worth, and that's why he sells him for a paltry 30 pieces of silver. He didn't value him. He had no sense of his worth. There's a great illustration of this same thing in the Old Testament. I don't know if you guys remember the story in 2 Samuel 6. In 2 Samuel 6, David's still relatively a new king, And so he's made Jerusalem his home after seven years in Hebron. And so the one thing that he really wants is he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant, you know, where God lived, the tent that Moses had brought through the wilderness. He wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he's tried once and they didn't do it right and things didn't go well. And he held off for a while. But he realizes what to do now. And so he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now, he's the king of Israel, dignified position, so to speak. And what does he do? He strips down to his skivvies, to his loincloth, and he's doing this wild man dance in front of the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem. It's crazy. This guy, the head of the nation, the one God honored, strips to his undies, so to speak, and he does this wild man dance in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, David is thrilled and just like Mary has no sense of protecting his own standing. He doesn't care because all he cares about is being with God. And because God says, I reside with Israel through the Ark of the Covenant, David is thrilled to pieces because God is coming to live with him in Jerusalem. Think of Psalm 27. You know, David says, there's only one thing I'm after. All I want is to live in God's presence. That's all I'm after. So the ark with God is coming into Jerusalem. That's all David cares about. He's he's abandoned before God's presence, doesn't care about his social standing or reputation because he values God and God is coming to live with him. And then he gets home and his wife Michael says, boy, aren't you important? Boy, you really blew it today. Look at you. Your servants are all going to look down on you. And he says, no, the servants will actually look up to me the more because of this. But Michael is just like Judas because she had no estimate of God's value. And God joining them in Jerusalem, it didn't mean anything to her. So to see David's uh, humble, 
activity, the wild man approach in front of the ark, just looks foolish to her. Looks like a waste. Looks like he's losing his senses, losing his standing. So she castigates him. And it's interesting, by the way, the scripture tells us Michael, this wife, never bore any children. She was barren all her life. This woman who was cold, had no sense of value about God or David, she dies without any children. She dies barren. Judas didn't recognize Jesus' person or worth, so it was easy for him to castigate Mary. Jesus responds by saying, verse 7 and 8, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. By the way, we're not exactly sure what this means here. The alabaster vial had to be broken for its contents to be emptied. Of course, the women do go after Jesus' burial to anoint the body the way they would anyone. Um, We're not sure exactly what that means. But he says, You always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Leave her alone. If what you're after, Judas, is really to bless the poor, then guess what? You'll always have opportunity because the poor will always be with you. So if that's what you're after, don't worry. This won't make any difference. You can take care of the poor tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. But Jesus says, I'm just here physically for a short while. She's done what she could. In Matthew's, uh, Mark say the same thing. I'll read from Matthew 26, 10 through 13 here. He says there, Why do you bother the woman? She's done a good deed to me. You always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. I love this. Jesus says that the act of worship here in Matthew and Mark's and in John 12 would be proclaimed whenever and wherever the gospel of Christ was proclaimed. I find this very interesting. His words about this woman, Mary, they're still true today. We're still reading this story. We're still reading about Mary and her worship. In other words, the one who took the lowest place before Christ, humbled herself, poured herself out at Christ's feet, Christ elevates through time and through geography, through peoples. He says, what she did, she poured herself out, valued me. I'm going to turn around and honor her. And so wherever the gospel about me is preached, the story about this woman who poured out the perfume, extravagant devotion, we might say, humble service, I'm going to reward her, and she's going to be associated with me wherever news about me goes. And, of course, that's been true and is true, literally, even in our church today. Mary has certainly got to be one of the loveliest pictures of worship in the scriptures. She pours out with no reservation what she had on Jesus because he was the object of her affection. He was the object of her worship. Her thoughts were so filled with Christ that she had no consciousness left. She had no guarded thoughts left about protecting her reputation or her standing or not appearing foolish or whatever. She had no thought about herself because she was so caught up with Christ. And then I love this too, that her worship filled the house with its aroma. And the scent and the aroma of that act and the memory, it's lingered on literally until today. And this thought about this aroma, again, you guys know related to a smell, sometimes all you have to do is smell something once. And even if you get a hint of that smell in the future, it just brings back that memory just like a flood. When I was a kid in grade school, I was supposed to do a science experiment. And the, the gal told me, my teacher, the ammonia is in the glass jar in the cupboard. 
and I got a glass jar out. It said ammonia, and it looked like water. And do you know what I did? I unscrewed the cap, and I went, and don't ever do that. I, I couldn't see. Uh, tears were streaming down my face. I couldn't see. And I anyway, it was crazy. The, they wondered what was wrong with my eyes. I just inhaled directly this ammonia. And I'm telling you, for literally not months, but years afterwards, I was hypersensitive to the smell of ammonia. I could smell a pool, a swimming pool, when no one else could. I, I had been overwhelmed by this once, and the slightest hint of it I could pick up for a long, long, long time afterward. But here's Mary. It's the same thought. It's that this extravagant devotion, it left this lingering effect on the minds in the senses of everybody who was there. In fact, when you read commentaries on this, this phrase about the aroma of it filling the house, the commentators all say the same thing. They say, gosh, this sounds like an eyewitness event. That is, not somebody retelling someone else's story, but someone who is there remembering the smell. The aroma of this act of worship filled the house. In Mary, you see this great liberty in worship because you're looking at someone who knew the worth or the value of the object of her worship. So Mary's enlarged because she understands the object of her worship is large. But when you look at Judas, you see the smallness and the littleness of this man because his view doesn't rise any higher than simply what he can buy with a little bit more money. And remember, as the guy who had the money, he's thinking, gosh, if we sold it, I'd have a little bit more to pilfer. That's all he sees. He's a little small man because his eyes don't rise higher than his own small desires. He doesn't see Jesus' worth or value. If you go to the Lion and Lamb website, Eric's put up, uh, Eric's got John 4, 23 and 24 on the home page of our website where Jesus said, An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God seeks worshipers. By the way, this is not self-serving. If your child, if you're a parent and your child shows you respect, they're only giving you what you should have. That's appropriate for you. And it's appropriate for them. If your child came in and showed you disrespect, it's not just that they don't value you. It's that it's to their deficit. It's, it's harmful to them for them not to respect you. When we worship God, we're simply doing what we should. We're doing what is in our best interest, what is most appropriate for us. God seeks worshipers not because he's a small person who simply wants to be affirmed. He seeks worshipers because worshipers recognize who he is. Worshipers recognize truth and value God as he should be valued. You know, when you worship someone or something, and again, we don't have much of this thought in our culture, but you bow before them. You know that if a king, a high king, took another king's territory, when that sub-king bowed down before him, it wasn't just an act of humility. The bowing before the superior king said, I'm yours and everything I have is yours. Worship means, and you know this from the Old Testament, it means to bow down, most literally, most often, to bow down. Because in the bowing down, I'm showing that I understand who I am before and that they have right and they have authority over me, over who I am, over what I have, over all that I am. So that when we worship, we're just doing what's appropriate. When you and I worship God, He's our Creator. 
He's omnipotent, omniscient. He's our Redeemer. Christ redeemed us. He's the one who's bought us back. If we don't worship, there's something wrong with us. So for Mary, Mary had it right. She looked at Christ. She understood who he was. She understood to some degree his value, his worthiness. And so she takes what she has of value and she pours it out without second thought on Christ. If you and I want to be like Mary, the thing to do isn't to look at Mary specifically, although certainly we can, we can be instructed from her, but we want to do, in a sense, what she did, not necessarily perfume. This doesn't, this doesn't do much for me if I think about the perfume itself. It doesn't do a lot for me if I'm thinking about worship. I don't need to do what Mary did physically, but I do need to do this. I need to focus on the same object that she had. I need to do what she did in that sense. She knew who Jesus was. She was filled with the thought of who he was and his worth, his value. And so the act of worship came naturally because her mind was already filled with thoughts of Christ. If I see this, a text like this, or John 4, and think, Lord, I know I need to be a worshiper, it's not that you tell yourself, worship, worship, worship. It's that you've got to look at the object of your worship. It means you need to look more closely at Christ. Uh, we had a nice discussion in Sunday school this morning and shared a little bit what we had learned uh, from the scriptures. We've been encouraged by from the scriptures earlier in the week. And it's hard for your mind to be filled with the worthiness of Christ if you're not thinking about him. And if you're not reading your Bible, it's hard to see Christ as it were. You know, we're inundated, our senses are inundated every day by all the things going on around us. If you and I don't start our days, if we don't include in our days this conscious effort to see Christ in the scriptures, we lose sight. And because of that, we lose a sense of his value. If we don't see him, we don't value him. Do you know what I mean? Jesus was physically present with Mary. That's not true with us. We have to see him some other way. We have to occupy our minds with him in some other fashion. You can read your Bible for all kinds of great reasons. You can learn history and geography. You can do all kinds of things. But the key reason to read your Bible is to get to know Christ. It's to see God more clearly. To see God more clearly. When we, at least once a month, celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're remembering Christ. We're valuing Him again when we think of what He did for us to redeem us back to the Father. And when we pray, we're honoring Him when we're drawing near to him by disclosing to him the things that are on our heart, the things that concern us, we're doing the same thing. We're drawing near to him. We're valuing him. And it is interesting that just like Mary, the funny thing in worship is when you give yourself away in submission or worship to God, the truth is you're the winner. You're blessed in return. Mary pours out that perfume, that valuable, expensive perfume, and humbles herself, and Jesus honors her throughout time all over the world. She gave away, and God honored her because of it. And when you and I worship God, we benefit. God's not a bigger person. He's not more secure because we worship Him. He is, in that sense, unchanged. He's pleased when we worship because it's appropriate. But He's not the better for it. We are. We're the ones who benefit from worship. Just like Mary, you and I are at our best when we're at Christ's feet, when we're humbly submitting to him the things we value in life. And let me just close by asking this, or think about this. If 
Christ is before me today if he's at my house for lunch and I wanted to honor him by giving him something of value, what would that be for you or for me? In other words, if I thought this is something I cherish in life, uh, in a sense, I guess, asking ourselves this, do we cherish something more than Christ? If Christ sat with me today at lunch, could I give him my checkbook? Or could I give him my house? Or could I give him my kids or my parents? You know, maybe I'd want to give him my kids. I don't know. You know, could I give him whatever I valued? Do I see Christ and his worth in such a way that to give him anything I have is not extravagant, it's just appropriate? Do you see? You know, in Romans 12, we've talked about this before, but in Romans 12, when, when it talks about I'm offering myself like a living sacrifice, you remember that thought is, that sacrifice is given wholly to God, it belongs to Him. If we're thinking about John 12 in this context this morning, if I'm worshiping Christ, am I free to give Him whatever I am, whatever I've got, any or all? Is there anything that I'm holding back, considering more important than Christ? If there is, it's just because I haven't seen Him clearly enough to know His worth, to know His worth, to give Him anything, to give Him Everything is only appropriate. In the end, it's really not extravagant. It's just appropriate. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I know that it's a failure to see you as you are that leads to so much of my unbelief. Lord, when I choose sin instead of you, it's because I'm content to play with trinkets and toys instead of seeing your greatness, your grandness. Lord, thanks that in Mary we get a picture and a reminder of someone who saw you and knew your worth. And I pray that we would be so filled, Lord, with the vision of who you are and what you're like, that worshiping you, Lord, whether that's in a Sunday service as we sing, whether that's a prayer, Lord, whether that's writing a check in giving, whether that's serving, Lord, whatever it is, I just pray that our lives, lives of worship, wouldn't, wouldn't be to us, Lord, the extra mile or extravagant. It would just be fitting because we know who you are and we value you. Lord, if we're valuing anything instead of you or beside you, I pray that you help us turn loose of those things as idols and as unworthy of those who have been brought near to you by your own sacrifice, by your own blood. Father, thanks one day that we'll be with you at a great celebration. We'll all be reclining at a table celebrating the victory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Our eyes will be fully open. We'll have no sin nature. We'll see you as you are. Until then, Lord, help us to be proactive to see you as you are today and to value you as we ought and to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.